once I decided, yo, this is something I want to do, I started recognizing and noticing kids in stuff more often, you know? Because, yeah, imagine, like, you know, this is before Disney Channel and all of that kind of stuff. So, like, to find a child on television was not quite as easy as it is now. <laughs> like, a kid could just watch, like, Disney Channel and their whole world could be, like, things of children and things that kids do. So something that I saw with kids in it and was, like, maybe E.T. or something and was, like, oh, like, I could actually do this now if I wanted to. And it right. could be like an actual job. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, folks, here we go. This is episode three of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And today I would like to introduce you all to our guest, Mr. Dorian Missick. Uh, a lot of you have probably followed this man's career for uh, decades at this point. Pretty crazy to be able to say that. Um, I first worked with Dorian on a uh, junior year film at NYU. Uh, it was called Five to Six, and it followed a $5 bill to six different people. Um, that film also featured a good friend of mine, Tony Patrick, who would be the writer on the script Black Card uh, that I directed and HBO picked up in 2016. So I'm doing the math quickly right there. That film was 1996, um, five to six at NYU. Uh, and then the short was 20 years later. Um, and in between that, uh, Dorian was in maybe two or three more shorts that I did, but also he carried the heavy lifting. He was number one on the call sheet and uh, number one in the journey of making my first feature film, Premium. So um, we're gonna sit back and get into a little bit about acting, uh, navigating a career, and also talking about his amazing and what I hope will be uh, an, a nominated performance as Jamal in ABC's For Life. Here we go. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. Today we welcome the talented actor, good friend, amazing dude, Dorian Missick. What's up, man? What up? Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to, I think I was thinking about changing up the first question. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, what was the first story that had an impact on you? Whether a film or, or even like, I don't know, something like even passed down through your family, but something where you felt the impact of a good story. I come from a storytelling family, man. So it's just like, I, it's tough to say anything, any one specific thing. Uh, I mean, one of the, one of my earliest memories of like family members telling stories was, it was an, an event, it was like a block party that I was at. 
you know, that my I was there and one of my cousins, he uh, ended up, it's crazy because like one, the, the people who hosted the block, one of the houses that hosted the block party, they had this big ass dog and they kept the dog on the balcony of their house because the dog was wreaking havoc on the neighborhood. Where was and this, in, in Atlanta or Jersey? Or This was actually in Queens. I was living in Jersey at the time, but it was it was a block party in Queens. All right. Yeah, we went to one of my cousin's houses in Queens. And um, the dog started pissing from the balcony down to the street. And, the, and it was in the, you know, from the fire escape. And so the piss was coming down. And one of my cousins thought it was like water. So he like jumped underneath the piss and started dancing in, in circles and letting the water get all in. And the grumpy was laughing at him, even though he was getting pissed on. Like he didn't know it was pissed. Right. And the shit was hilarious to me. And then my father was recounting that incident to somebody that he worked with, right? And the way he told it, even though I was there, he made me listen to it like I wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? And that was the first time when I realized the power of like really painting the story because I mean, literally I, I was like, at the, I was listening with bated breath and I was right there. Like I watched it happen. And I got a bunch of situations like that with my family where like they just are great, great at holding court, man. That's that's dope, man. That, that, I think one of the things that I used to recognize would be when I had all my my office jobs, and you'd be at, you'd be near the water cooler or the microwave or the refrigerator, and there'd be somebody who could weave a tale about some bullshit, but it would be captivating. And then there'd be somebody who had some really dramatic things happen to them, and you're like, "Man, would you just shut up?" Like, like, yeah, like, yeah, a, like, like a super a, a super important milestone in their life, and you're like, "Come on, man!" Like, I'm trying to heat this fish up and get back to my desk. Um, <laughs> so, now nah, that's true, man. And, and and did that kind of have any impact on you wanting to be, you know, a rapper or actor or comedian? Because I know you've had a lot of uh, creative inspirations and paths that you could have followed yeah i mean you know kind of because i it, because you know you, you, when you spend so much time with your family like i did you things just become like second nature like you don't realize that it's anything special until you get around people who are not your family members and then you start talking and then you realize people are dying laughing and you're like what is so funny like this actually happened like why is it so funny to you and then you realize like yo i have a gift you know, I have that gift that my dad has, that my uncles have, that my mother has. And so it, it put it into my into my mind, you know, and then I, you know, being when I was a kid in Jersey, I went to private school in Westfield, New Jersey, which uh, I don't know how it is now. But at the time, it was not very black. And um, I was the only black kid in the, in the school. And what I realized quickly, the only kid black kid in the school, not just my class, in the school at the time. And um, what I realized quickly was that um, they really appreciated the fact that I could run fast and I could tell jokes. You know what I'm saying? Like, those were the two things that I realized were, like, at the top of the the list of how I could keep people, like, not talking about my blackness, you know? Um, So that kind of, like, put the seed in my head that, yo, I could be an entertainer. And it kind of keeps people from recognizing the things that are different. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Was there a, um, so that's interesting. Was there from, from the way that like your father recounted that story of, of the dog pissing off the balcony, like what, what, what did you kind of learn to be the story of your family? What you mean? Like, you mean like, I don't know, like, and I don't know if that's like a family tree per se, but like, you know, mystics are fill in the blank, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, 
it's funny because like that that moment definitely made me look listen to my dad. And I'm like, damn, I was there, but did it happen like that? And then I had to like recount the I the, the details, and I was like, it, it really did happen like that. But he like took the most mundane thing and and put a flare on it. But it's like it actually did happen. Like that did happen. It's just that might not have been the way I described it. And so uh, you know, like how people say, like you put a you know you put a hundred on ten, like you know. What I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> like that's how that's how we tell stories man we put like 100 on 10 it's not really an exaggeration but it's just like yo you wouldn't think like you know like how you got the the army cap on and i'd be like yo he had on the army cap you know like the, the he looked like he, he looked like one of the buffalo soldiers and you know somebody's like yo this is a regular army cap like what you talking right. about but like the way he said it you know you're like yo that's a vivid image and it's the truth right <laughs> now you gotta so paint he that looked like castro like it's the truth <laughs> but it's like that's not not be the way somebody else would describe it. <laughs> right. So when when did you get the the bug to want to have a career in story as an actor? Um, very early, man. I I I, I can't even really remember how far back. I think probably when I saw I saw Soldiers play Soldier Story the movie. That was like what eighty three. So that would put me in the first grade. I think at that time, kind, kindergarten or first grade, like around there. Um, and so I was really little when I went to see that movie and it was the first time I had seen a story about a bunch of black people that wasn't like a documentary about slavery or the civil rights, but it dealt with those, with the civil rights kind of issues, but like in a way where it was like not bearing down on us, it was just like a story. Right. And that kind of opened my mind. And then my mother was such a huge Denzel Washington fan. And it was like he was larger than life in my house because of uh, the TV show. Uh, what was it? Uh, St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those that combination it was like a double punch because like she had seen him on, she had seen him at the NEC do Soldier's Story, Soldier's Play. I saw Soldier's Story and I knew my mother was watching St. Elsewhere. I didn't really watch that. I was kind of a kid. That wasn't for me. But I knew she watched it, you know, and I knew that it was a big deal. And so I wanted to have some kind of part in that. You know what I mean? So I think somewhere around there, I decided like, yo, this might be something I can do. But then also it was pretty funny, man. And Eddie Murphy was like another one of my heroes. So I was like, some way or the other, I was going to do that, like be a comedian or something, you know? You couldn't be an 80s baby and and not have like your whole decade, like uh, mile marked by an Eddie Murphy movie. You know what I mean? Like, and even I, I love the ones that people, some people hate, like Golden Child. That shit was funny as hell to me. I, I still don't like it. <laughs> as long as I want to, man. I still, I like, like, you know, Bowfinger. Like, you know, that's one of the, or like, what's the one, the one with Rasputia? Like, people hate that movie, but I love that. Joint. Wait, which one is that? Where you, it was like, it, it was like towards the end, like, right, it came out, it kind of messed him up for the Oscar because he was like, gonna get the Dream Girls Oscar and he put this yeah. movie out. Uh, where one of the he played like a bunch of different characters, but one was a woman named Rasputia. Was it Pluto Nash? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Uh, damn, it'll come back to me. But I, I, that movie actually wasn't as bad as they say. But either way, yeah, I'm an Eddie Murphy dude, man. Like I grew up Richard Pryor. My, my mom's dad kind of looked like Richard Pryor to me as a kid, and so I grew up. Okay. Rich was part of my family, so it was like a combination of these things, man. My mom's side of the family, my my grandfather on, on her side. Her dad, like, is an ill, like, he's a crazy storyteller, or was a crazy storyteller, mostly with alcohol involved, and it was super blue, super 
just, I mean, street tales. I love yeah. that dude. And that's a love listening to him. I just love hanging with him. He just was like a pimp kind of character, even though he was not a pimp, you know. Uh, it just was like that character, that personality really just, that kind of stuff just really linked with me, man. That made me say, like, I want to portray these kind of things somehow, you know. Right. Plus, also, man, growing up, everybody I knew who had a job, they had careers. Like, they didn't just have jobs. So, like, my mother was a nurse, and she really enjoyed what she was doing. My aunt worked for the airlines, and she loved what she was doing. So I was under the impression that to make a living, you find something you love, and then you do that. You know what I'm saying? It didn't occur to me that people, some people just have jobs. Like, they just, just make money. So right. I, I was like in college before I actually noticed that people did things that they didn't want to do for a living. Like like 95% of Americans. <laughs> yeah, like that completely went over my head, man. Yeah. I looked at the garbage man. I was like, yo, he digs getting garbage. Right. Electric, electrician, that's what he wants to do. Like it never occurred to me that like, yo, this is a job to do something or is it because I couldn't do something else or whatever. Mm-hmm. Never, I never even thought about that. Was that supported by the way that like your mom and your dad viewed the world or was that you just make writing your own story about what you saw? Yeah, it's me writing my own story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it really was because it, it wasn't like anybody ever said to me. I mean, yeah, you know, you get the typical speech that your parents give you, like, oh, you could be anything in the world, just set your mind to. <laughs> but it wasn't like nothing like that. Like, it wasn't like my mom woke me up every day and was like, you was special, you was kind. It was none of that. It was literally just, I just right. learned from example, you know, they like going to their job because they must like it because they was always talking about it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, anytime we sit down at dinner, they talking about something. This person ain't counting. This bitch got on my nerves. Da-da-da. You know, like you just, it was just like a thing. So you figured, well, shit, you know, that's what you do. That's that's called adulting. <laughs> right, right. You know, right. yeah, it was like, it's what you do. So let's let's talk about how you how you got your got your career going, man. Like, let's go from um, I know you were you got your first start, you're a child actor, but let's kind of go from that first job to Maybe the uh, the big break. Yeah, dang. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, man, I wanted to do it from the time I was little. Uh, once I started, once I decided, yo, this is something I want to do, I started recognizing and noticing kids in stuff more often, you know? Because, yeah, I imagine, like, you know, this is before Disney Channel and all of that kind of stuff. So, like, to find a child on television was not quite as easy as it is now. <laughs> like a kid could just watch like Disney Channel and they, their whole world could be like things of children and things that kids do. Right. When I was growing up, it was like, we had like Arnold on <laughs> Webster, uh, you know, Ricky Schroeder. On, and it wasn't like a whole lot of images. And so I think when I saw like Goonies or something like that, I was like, yo, you know, no, actually Goonies, I auditioned for that movie. So it must've been something before that. Because Goonies was one of my first auditions as a kid. So something that I saw with kids in it and was like, maybe E.T. or something. And was like, oh, like I could actually do this now if I wanted to. And it could be like an actual job. So, I, you know, I wanted to do it. And my teacher at the time when I was, uh, I think, probably like in fifth or or fifth grade or so, her son is an actor and he was a child actor. And so I would ask her questions about like how he got into it. But I was kind of a pest to her. And um, she was like, yo, you know, he's he listens in class. He's a good kid. He's not bad like you. Like he doesn't talk out of, you know, talk out of turn. And 
and stand up in class and he doesn't do any of that. So she was like, that's what you takes to be an actor. Like you don't, you don't do that. You don't have what it takes. And so I asked if I could go to one of his classes. And she was like, yeah, I'll take you to his class. So I went to an acting class, like to observe, like on a Saturday afternoon. And my mom came, we drove into Manhattan and went to this class. And um, when we went there, they were, they let me join in on the warm up. Like I couldn't participate in actual class, but they let me do the warm up. And for the warm up, they was like, yo, do some movements to stretch out and all that. Yeah, be a tree. Yeah, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. Like that kind of thing. And then they were like, yo, imitate what each kid is doing. So they would pick out a kid and say, you know, do what Tommy's doing. Do what Susie's doing. And so we, so when it came time to do what I was doing, I started popping and locking. And none of the kids could really do that. So then mm-hmm. it just became a thing. Everybody was just watching me break dance. Like, yo, this is crazy. What the hell is this? Right. And it turns out there was some people observing our class that were casting directors looking for kids to break dance in a commercial. So it was just like the time it was just right. Yo. So that that was a Saturday. I was on the set on my first job by like that Wednesday or Thursday. See? So then I was Good. like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. There's a lot. That's ill, man. I, I didn't know that story, but there's a lot in that that kind of speaks to your career. And uh, and full disclosure, for people who don't know, I've, I've known this brother since 19. 19- 96 yeah 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 so like you know um but like you know like somebody's always watching you never know know who's in the room and you always try and uh show that you're the best and it's like and that and if you always do that and you and you got talent and vision it's gonna come together not 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 on your first day for everybody but (laughs) you know that that's how that those those are the ingredients of that moment that's dope yeah yeah, it was crazy, man. You know, you just, like you said, man, you just got to let your light shine, man. You know what I'm saying? Ultimately, that's what it is. It was just, I was too young and naive to be uh, nervous or to even realize that that lady was trying to play me. Like, I was just too young for that. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I just was like, yo, you know, okay, cool. I took it as a challenge. Like some, like a kid telling me, like, yo, you can't touch the net. Right. And then right. you jump and touch it. Like, that's how I looked at it. Like, it didn't really even... It wasn't until I got older and started telling that story that people were like, yo, she's a horrible human being. Right. And there was like a couple other things that she did to me as a teacher that was true. She was a horrible human being. But, hey, man, out of out of, out of of that horrendousness, you know, some greatness came out of it. Hey, there it is. That's how you grow, man. It was crazy. Um, so did you go to college for acting? I tried to, man. Yeah, I, I tried to make that attempt. But, uh. It just, I was too, I was during the college years, I was too poor, man. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have a lot of, um, I didn't have a lot of, um, I didn't prep right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of people who, you know, my mother didn't save no money. We didn't have no money to save. Like it was like a lot of things. So when they got time for me to do that, I had to go to, I had to, I had to get, I had to work, man. Like right. that was just the end of it. Like I, I did, I did, you know, a little time here and there <laughs> trying to go to school and, but it was just a matter of like, I had to focus on um, eating. If I had to do it all over again, I just would have took out loans. If I knew how much money I was going to make later on, I just would have broke the bank. But I wasn't ready to bet on myself that much yet. I didn't know. I thought I was going to have like decades of being poor when I really was only poor for about five years. Hmm. That, maybe four, you know. That's very interesting. That's a that's a nice short window of being poor too, man. When you look at it, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, I was poor during the shiny suit era, so it was whack. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? You broke when everybody in the club buying bottles and throwing it up, and you sitting up here got one, you know, Mai Tai sour or whatever the hell, Midori yeah. sour, and you looking like whack. It was whack, man. That bad boy made it real rough to just be. Ooh, man, you kidding me? 90, 93 to 99, man. Yeah, yo. You was hurting during those years. You wasn't really living, <laughs> man. You ain't seen nothing. <laughs> so so now let me let me try and I'm gonna um make these roads collide. So when I met you, that was um man, that was fall of '96. I was in my intermediate production class of my junior year at NYU. And Janie knew how did I know? Oh no, Janie Fleming worked in our building. We became friends. Y'all were friends, and she introduced me to you. What were you doing at that point, like, in your career? I think at that moment I was in a... I know I was. I was in a theater company. So I was making... You know, I was in, like, a uh, a children's theater company. So we was, like, going around doing shows, schools, and things like that. But it was an income. I was doing that and um, commercials at that moment, uh, trying to break... And theater, other than just the, the children's theater, I was doing, you know... Uh, super duper off Broadway, Shakespeare in the parking lot kind of stuff. But uh <laughs> yeah, you know, like cutting my teeth. <laughs> so I was I was kind of knocking around the city doing that kind of stuff. Um and like you, you said Blockbuster video. I, I feel like that was Oh yeah, that's right. Yo, I forgot about that. Yeah, I was working at Blockbuster. I think because when I met you, like you said, it was the fall. So I was trying to save up money for Christmas. Uh-huh. And so I took a part-time job at Blockbuster, which was actually like the most gangster I really, you know, I miss those people, man. That job was ill. <laughs> was that in Queens? Yeah, that was in Southside Jamaica, Queens, man. <laughs> yeah, that was the dopest, man. I love that thing, yo. But the, just a quick aside about that place. All right. yeah. So it, it was great for me to take out all my aggression because it was like, we would get robbed like once a week because we was like <laughs> right in the hood, man. People come in and steal from us, stick us up, all kinds of stuff, like once a week. And so my manager was like, listen, headquarters is they're like they're gonna i'm gonna end up getting fired because we can't keep product in the store and they're gonna close the store down so what we need to do is because we would call the cops and they would show up like an hour later like not nah, show up so it was like yo what we need to do if you catch anybody stealing you need to snatch them up and put them in the break room until the cops come so then the cops can arrest them and we get the material back so that turned into all of us at work the dudes just couldn't wait to see somebody stealing we was jumping people be right. like, yo, Blockbuster would get sued if they knew we was doing all of this. We was body slamming customers. Like, yo. <laughs> but that product stayed. Yeah, the product stayed, man. And we could rent as many movies as we wanted for free. So I got a real good education on film just from yeah. that alone. That's that Tarantino <laughs> and, and Kevin Smith of it all, man. You know, yeah. I, I, I tell people this all the time, man. Like, one of my best jobs for life was pumping gas. You know what I mean? Like I, I, you learn, you learn crucial skills that nobody ever tells you when you have a job like that, man. Because you know it was like it was like a, a reverse road movie because everybody came through the gas station. So yeah. you you getting you know super rich doctors. You got people who got who literally getting two dollars of gas and coins, and you're interacting with everybody and seeing how they view the world and how they view you which is super, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I might have yeah. told you, there was a guy who used to come and get 
he had a Ford Explorer and every Sunday he'd fill that shit up. It would take $28. Like, like he, he ain't drive nowhere different every week. And um, I remember the first time he came in, it was raining. We didn't have a canopy and he would slide the credit card through like a crack in the window. And I'm like, dog, I'm, I'm getting wet. You can't even like let the window down. And so one time the machine was broken and he had to come in and um, uh, deal with the card inside. And he saw all the books and shit I had because I was there on weekends from NYU. And then he stayed and talked to me for like 20 minutes. And then every time after he'd stop and we'd talk for like five minutes. And it's like, you shouldn't have to be introduced to my reading list. You know what I mean? Yeah. To, to find merit in that relationship, man. That's crazy. But it's, yeah. it's also true about our experience. Yeah. <laughs> Why everywhere, everywhere I go, man, I, the blue collar workers, I'm like, what's good, man? Like, cause people act like they don't see them. Yeah, seriously, you know, yeah, that's, that's from the rap. I mean, a lot of people who I worked with at Blockbuster, you know, it was a temporary job. A lot of the cats was in college and, you know, yeah. and, and some of them, you know, just did whatever. But, like, it's interesting to watch. Like, we keep up with each other. It was, you know what I'm saying? Like, with each yeah, other yeah. journeys, you know what I'm saying? And it's just, and it's like, you look back and sometimes you're like, man, how do I know that person? Like, who is this person uploading to Instagram? Who Who is this? And you're like, oh, damn, that's right. That's my man. We used to work together at, you know, Blockbuster. Now he's in politics. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, like yo, that's right. wild. You know what I'm saying? Like, is, that, is that a true story? Is that yeah, a true story? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great, man. That's yeah. great. Um, but talk about the, the big break. I know what it was. Because um, uh, I think I went with you to the premiere. But what was, what was your big break? And, and how'd you get it? Oh yeah, a big break, no question. I think that my introduction to the industry was was two weeks' notice, without a doubt. The movie with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant. Um, I mean, once again, that's the one of them situations where it was like I just showed up because I ended up getting that because I was going to these workshops that you do that they got shut down now. But it was like a thing where you would like basically pay to play, like you pay to see casting directors. You know what I'm saying? And uh. That was like a way for me to kind of break into the television thing because a lot of these people weren't coming to see plays, at least not the plays I was doing. Because it wasn't like I was doing plays at the public theater. I'm doing them at, you know, Joe Schmo Theater. Nobody really was trying to come out there. So this was how I was getting to meet people. So I met the casting director through that, through one of those workshops. Wait, can I hop in? Who's who's telling you to do this? Is this just like you being, having like a kind of a hustler's mind spirit about like, making sure you're coming from every angle or like was there a handbook for this kind of ingenuity nah man i was a hustler that's it like that was you know and that's how come you know like you know al you know al thompson of course me and al that's where that was our connecting point was that we were both about like that hustle michael k williams like that was like my hustling crew in the beginning like we would give each other information and stuff like that like how to make these moves but it, it was really just me bumping and figuring out things i mean i knew what i liked i knew i liked being on stage and I knew uh, I needed to eat. So that's where the commercials came in. I didn't necessarily like doing them, but, you know, they paid really well. So at that time, so I, I knew to kind of do that. But then I, I, I just had to figure out how can I get seen by the people who I needed to be seen? Because I knew my product was good. I was like, how can I get it in front of the right buyers, you know? And so the workshop was just the thing. And, you know, it, people were saying like, look, it's a waste of money. And listen, it was, I pissed in the ocean. I spent a lot of money meeting people who probably just showed up to get money and leave. 
But the one job that I did do paid for all of those things and then some. And the thing is, I got commercials out of those workshops. So I, those things more than paid for themselves. Like So I, I kind of stand by that. But I understand why some people think it's a waste. But the difference, though, is uh, and then we'll get back to two weeks notice. But the difference is like what you are bringing to this like wax scenario right you know what i mean mm-hmm. because like uh even for me like i i've done a variety of like programs or like workshops and it's like okay i, I can look here and say like well 99 percent of the people that have ever gone through these have never actually achieved the target that's being sold but i'm looking at that and saying they're not me you know what I mean? And like, how are they? And and I don't know what they're doing, but I just want to get in the room because if I can get in the room, then I, at least the, you know, I have an opportunity to miss the shot. Serious. And I was, I, my thing was, I ain't missing no shots. Exactly. You know, that's how I looked at it. I was just like, yo, only thing separate me from that dude is, you know, uh, the, the, the right agent or the right, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was just like, my thinking at that time was just like, yo, all you gotta do is see me and you'll know you need to rock with me. Like, like you know, I, I, I didn't think twice about it. I, it never occurred to me, like, am I good enough? Which is probably like good that I didn't think about that. <laughs> like, I didn't think like, I'm only here because I'm not good enough. I was like, I'm only here because y'all don't have opportunity to see how good I am. And so exactly. I was like, yo, whatever it takes, let me just get there and let me just do it. And then when you see me, you're not gonna deny me. You know, like it, it it, it just it just seemed like A plus B equals C, like, <laughs> and and as it and indeed it was. So that's that's how you got on the radar of the of uh, the two weeks notice casting director. Or yeah, okay. yeah, I met her at a workshop. Matter of fact, not even the casting director. It was like her associate, like you know what I'm saying. Who I met at the workshop. Um, I met Janice Wild, and she's Eileen Stargers. Um, she was Eileen Stargers' associate. Now she's probably her partner. But uh, I met Janice and um, she she told me that um, she took my picture after that, that I gave her. She took my headshot and put it next to her desk with a sticky on it that said, must find work. Because she was like, yo, this kid is good. We have to find something for him, you know. And it sat there for months. Like, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I just went back to doing what I was doing. Went back to Blockbuster, doing student film, whatever. And then, <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? I just went back to my life, you know? And um, then all of a sudden I did get, I managed to get an agent um, through a play that I was doing, but it was like a, the kind of agent that is really good for theater. Like they would have kept me doing plays and plays and plays and plays. And they, they get, I, I was doing regional theater all over the place. It was great. I got no problems with them. But when it came time for like the film and television stuff, they're really only good at getting you like the one or two liners. And so they like submitted me for the movie for two weeks notice to play like, you know, like a bellman or bellhop or something like that. Something just, you know, quick in and out. And that's when the casting director jumped on it. Like, yo, maybe we should bring this guy in for this. The character was a fat Italian dude. uh, But she was like, this kid is so funny. And this movie is very white. I remember her telling me that. (laughs) And she said, literally said that to me. It's very white, and um, so they wanted, they needed to do something, and so you know, they they brought me in, and I did like maybe seven or eight auditions, and um, and like three of them were with Hugh Grant, and then um, ended up getting the part, and then that was it. Like then I was then I was in the game, you know. Then like uh, 
ICM sign me. Like, you know, like it was like all the real stuff that's supposed to happen, happened then, you know, like once that happened, it was like, I'm in the door. I got a publicist. I, yeah. I became the guy you know now. Like, <laughs> So I never really asked you this specifically along the journey, but like, was the transition from films to TV as difficult as getting that first film? Or like, you know, what, what was different about it? Nah, man, because then from that point on, I was I was busting. I came out I came out swinging. You know what I'm saying? Like when that hit, it was a wrap because when when that came out, it was number one. It was a you know it was a big deal. Hugh Grant and Sandy Sandy were big big stars at the moment. You know, and it was like a big holiday film. This was and 2002. Yeah, we shot it. Yeah, because we started shooting six six months after the towers came down. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so. Um, yeah, so this was this thing came out December two thousand two, and and they, you know, when this movie was done, it was like a big deal, like because this was a a role that would have gone to like a, a, a comedian of some sort, you know, like a big name comedian because it was a meaty role, right. and so the fact that it was like this unknown guy, it it kind of created a buzz around me, and then uh, you know I had a lot of meetings set up, and then Sandra was pretty good about that too, like making sure I met the right people. Um, shoot, I think my one of our first trips about premium was yeah. a time when when we were trying to get money to get premium done. I was taking a lot of those meetings that they were setting up for me as a yeah. result of me just doing the movie before the movie came out. It was right. already like you got to meet this kid, right. and so you know I kind of felt like the toast of the town. You know, it was easy, and then that led to like me getting a deal, a development deal at ABC, a talent development deal, mm-hmm. which you know got me into the TV world. You know, so I think this feels like a good uh, time to transition to just kind of getting your perspective on working with the director. Um, now, for those who haven't seen it, we we've done. Well, I can tell you what I know. Most of y'all haven't seen. Y'all probably haven't seen 3D. Probably never will. Um, yeah, 2000, 2000, yeah. 2001. 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was my NYU thesis that uh, was at Sundance in 01 that starred Dorian and Kerry Washington and Al Thompson and Charles Parnell. Um, but the thing that people may have seen would be um, Premium, which we shot in 2005 after spending six years raising the money. Um, mm-hmm. And then it came out in 2007. Um, yeah. As far as the the realities of kind of being number one on the call sheet, you know, and for the actors out there too, like what are the, what are the main differences for you in, um, in, in, in being the kind of protagonist of the movie versus maybe a, a, a show or a film where you're um, in a supporting fashion? Uh, I mean, you know, number one sets the tone, you know, or should set the tone mm-hmm. uh, for the, the workspace. You know, and that's one of the things that I learned super quickly working with people because, you know, back to two weeks notice working with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant, like they really set the tone, you know, especially Sandy. Like she's super loving and supportive and like she really set the tone. And then me and Hugh got along great. And you just kind of understood like there was a bigger responsibility than just being the the main person on the show, you know, the main person. And I realized I like that responsibility, man, because you feel like you uh, people kind of show people show up based on the kind of actor that is in the number one position, you know. So if you right. get somebody who's about their business, uh, 
you're going to get other actors that come on board like that. And you kind of know, you know, you kind of, they kind of know what game you're playing. They kind of know what story you're trying to tell. And and so I want to make sure that whenever I'm, whenever I'm number one, whenever those opportunities arrive, arrive, I I bet I, you know, I set the tone of professionalism and all that. And so when it came time for us to do premium, because we had worked so diligently in raising money, like this is, you know, pre crowdfunding, we, our crowdfunding was, we had to go to a crowd and ask for funding. (laughs) Like, yo, <laughs> it was not no going on the internet. Like we was like hosting dinner parties and going to people's houses and man, we was doing all kinds of things, man. Like, woo, it was great. But I felt like I was so a part of that process that by the time I got time to shoot it, I, you know, I was like, yo, I already felt so attached to the creative process. We, I'd been through all the iterations of the different scripts and, you know, the casting process, everything that I was like, okay, I understand what, what it takes to get this movie going. Mm-hmm. And I just carried that on to all my other work. You know, even sometimes when I wasn't number one on the sheet, on the call sheet, my cast kind of looked to me as number one because of that. Hmm. Set the tone, man. It's huge. And a lot of folks uh, don't always recognize the value in it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like it anyway, because I like the challenge of being the, you know, of telling the whole, of, of the story kind of being on my back a little bit. Right. I like that challenge, man, because as an actor, it gives you so much space to breathe. I mean, there's some value in supporting as well, of course. Um, but it's just after a while, you know, you kind of just like, yo, man, I just prefer to spread my wings. Right. Right. So, you know, there there's such a unique craft that's happening, a craft of collaboration when you're making a TV show or a film where you have so many people with so many uniquely different skills coming together to make this one thing. Um, hopefully with the clarity in, of, of the story and being on the same page, like how does your, um, how do you define or what do you look for in your collaboration with a director? Um, well, in film, if it's a writer director, uh, like I, that's, I prefer the writer director in a film just because then they have a complete grasp and they don't have to go back to anybody in terms of like what their interpretation is of the piece. So you can have a conversation with essentially two people at once, the writer and the director. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, you might have an idea and the writer might have an idea or the answer that the director gives you will be different than the answer the writer gives you. So right. I, I prefer somebody who really, who's really dug into the piece as much as I'm going to dig into it. Um, so usually if you've written it, you've list you've looked at the, looked at it from so many different angles that any question I have is not really gonna be pushing you or, or not really gonna be uh uh challenging you so much right. as it's just like, yo, this is something that I thought about and perhaps you didn't mean it to come across this way, or maybe you did, or here's an idea that I have. And I prefer to work with writers and directors like that, um, that are writer directors. I look for that. In television, you know, um, I like when a director comes in with a clean vision, man, you know, as far as like directing the acting, I mean, if I've been developing this character for X amount of episodes, uh, you know, we ain't really gonna have a whole lot of discussions about what my character will and won't do. That's, that's not, that's like a lot, that's a waste, that's a lot of wasted energy. But what we can do, I think is best is like, yo, if, if you're gonna put my character in a position that maybe I wouldn't necessarily find my character in, and you as a director can give me a good enough like leeway, like push me in that direction enough that makes sense, 
then, um, you know, I, I love that. I'm really excited by that. I'm excited by directors who push back, man, in television. Right. Uh, when it's not ego related, man. TV creates a lot of egos because there's so much quick money in it, man. So mm. you have so many of these directors, writers, actors that, um, you know, they get put on these lists and the people who make these things, they make it on such a quick pace. They just use the same people over and over again. And no one ever checks the temperature to see if they're still good at what they do or if they were ever good at what they do. And so sometimes you you find that in television a lot, man, where you're just dealing with egos. Like, you know, actors got questions about the script and it's really just, they don't want you to shoot them from that side or they don't want to, you know, they, they feeling fat today, so they don't want to. So that, that kind of stuff really gets in the way in the television process. You know, sometimes film, but it gets in the way in TV a lot. You know? I find that a lot in television. And then when you get these directors who come in and they, they you know, they trying to prove you know, they ain't really shooting the show that you're doing. They shooting the show that they want to do because they want to, they thinking about the pilot. They want to pitch and how they can use this to pitch their pilot. So you just got to, you're dealing with a lot of different elements that are all ego based. And so I, I prefer it when in television, when you're in a situation that the material brings humble people to the table, man. And that's what I find. Like if you find something that's really good, the material that's really dope, you find that people show up because they want to work on that material. Not because it's a stop in the journey, but this is like a, a, a seminal stop in there, in a seminal moment in the journey. You know, I right. prefer that. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, if I've, I've I've been fortunate enough, man. I've yet to, and I don't intend to do a show that I don't like. You know what I mean? Like, even even if I I might come to this show newly because they reached out to me because of another show that I did. Um, but somehow if you, if you keep it in the right pocket, they're responding to something you did in another show that has something they're looking for in their show. So then you, right. you just keep having this kind of feedback loop of using your skills to, you know, do shit that people want to see. Hey, this is Issa Rae and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. Let's talk about For Life, man, because that that was, um, you know, man, that whole storyline for Jamal unfolded over quarantine, which I wonder how that universal global experience of like quarantine had an effect on um people digesting episodes of your show you know what i mean like were people looking forward to it more and so then when your episodes came and hit weekly there was like more investment um it's hard to track but i don't know if you could tell just by like social media because you had a you had a a super compelling storyline that caught everybody by surprise and you killed it with the performance. Um, I'm just wondering if you might've noticed anything different, like in the way that uh, the last dance, like everybody was there for that. Cause it was like, yo, it's Sunday and I got nothing to do. Right. Uh, you know what? I don't know if that really had much effect me simply because I mean, that's, t- that's tough 
it's tough material. And during tough times, a lot of times people don't flock to tough material. I think if anything, um, there was a lot of talk about it because the people who watch the show are avid watchers. Like they are fans of the show. And so people hear about it and want to be involved and want to watch it. You know what I'm saying? And um, so I think that was more of what I was noticing. Um, I mean, pre we, we started a little bit before the quarantine and I definitely noticed a pickup on the streets. Like if I was walking somewhere up at the airport, uh, the things that people recognized me from was that, you know what I'm saying? Like that was the thing. Like, like that, that was when I was like, Oh, I got something that people are watching. You right. know? And that, that, I noticed that difference. Um, once the real surprising element of my character unfolded, I was in the house. I would have loved to know what that was like to be on the street during that time, you know, yeah. uh, just to see what that response would be. I mean, I saw some of the stuff online and it was pretty much what I expected. You know, it, it, it's, it's divisive. Let's talk about the character and, and, and the role and like uh, what attracted you to it. It's interesting. What tricked me, attracted me to it was kind of funny. I got tricked a little bit uh, because my, my agents knew I was doing a play. That's when I was doing uh, two trains running in New York. Right. And, like, and um. So I wasn't really auditioning for stuff. It was pilot season. I was like, I'll read it. And if they want me to do it, I'll do it. But I just was like not interested in a lot of stuff uh, that was happening during pilot season. It was a couple of things. So they send this thing to me on a two-day show Saturday. And they're like, yo, read this. We can get you an offer. Uh, but you got to read it and let us know what you think about it. So like read it in between shows or whatever. I read it thinking that they wanted me to play Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the and that's the uh uh the lead on the on the yeah, show the lead on the show and i was like man this is incredible material yeah i was like definitely 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 and then when we had a conversation about it i was like it's too late man like i love the story too much that like i'm, I'm here like i gotta do it because in the pilot jamal doesn't do anything hardly at all you know um so that was what the big deal was i had to have a lot of conversations with the creatives about what their game plan was for him for the season, but they, it was good how the timing of it was perfect because they, I read this script, just reading it for the story. And just, I just assumed because they gave it to me that this is the character I was playing, but I fell in love with the world. I fell in love with the writing. I fell in love with the, 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 the just the whole experience that I was like, I have to be a part of this. Right. You no. Know, and I may not have read it had they told me that, that I was playing another role. Gotcha. And not that they tricked me, they just didn't tell me. They just like read it. But that, I mean, but you know what? That's that's kind of reflecting that the storytelling was was well executed and it was a world that was worth being on TV because it, it is a different kind of show. And I often was wondering how, you know, it would be handled on network. Um, for those that haven't seen it, For Life um, is a show that follows... Um, a, a Aaron, a character named Aaron, who's in jail and and basically educates himself to defend himself and also get back at um, the system and 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 uh, defend other inmates. For uh, I'm I'm not explaining it very well. I didn't have the synopsis pulled up, but you, you give it you give it a better run than that. Yeah, he's a lawyer. He becomes a lawyer in jail. Represents himself. It's a, ultimately we know the true story of uh, Isaac Wright Jr. He ultimately gets out. Um, and in this, you watch how he uses the cases that of the other inmates to build his case to support himself so he can get out of jail, you know, um, and that's, you know, 
pretty much what it is. But it deals with the the, the politics of the prison politics, uh, the actual politics, um, the guards, and um, you know you, you kind of see the, that world and how all those things intertwine and how it's almost impossible for somebody to get justice in a situation like that. And so, as far as the revelations of Jamal's character over the season, you were you finding out where his story was going to go like week to week or did they kind of put eyes on, like give you eyes on that? Oh, they told me Joe, they told me from day one. Like, okay. Yeah. 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 You know, cause that's, that's something that, you know, you gotta be sure that someone's okay with, you right. know what I mean? Right. Um, so yeah, now they told me from the gate, like we had our first table read and um, I remember Hank Steinberg, our creator was like, Hey man, you know, stick around, let's talk. And we had been having some conversations via text message and email just about like where I think, you know, what would be interesting things that Jamal could do over the season and all that, not knowing what they had planned. I just was like throwing things out there because I was just like, yo, I I don't know what you guys are thinking. Read this article. But, you know, so we had been having a lot of discussions. And um, what was very clear was if we can't find any place for this character to go, you're free to leave. That was very clear from the gate from day day one. And so when he was telling me to come into his office, I was like, this is when he tells me like, yo, we couldn't figure it out. Uh, we gonna just kill you and, and you know, I'll let you go before pilot season so you can get something else. Like, you know, I thought it was gonna be one of them conversations, but instead he like shut the door, looked around and was like, listen, this is what we got planned. Right. And it was, it was, it was, I was like, yo man, uh, there's no way I could have come up with that on my own. Right. Well, for the listeners, we're obviously talking cryptically here and we're yeah. avoiding uh, all spoilers, but I highly recommend you hop on, um, you know, ABC.com and, and check out season one of For Life because it's dope. We're on Hulu, too. And it's on yeah. Hulu as well. And, you know, I got fellow friends uh, directing episodes and, you know, you know, what's also cool, man. I, I, I don't know if he um, if he ever went up to you, but there was a kid who had PA'd, right, on on a short that we made in 2003. Um, was it Aaron Jacobs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would see him from time to time on set. He came up to me. I would see him actually damn near every day at one point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't remember that because it was a couple of people who came up to me. He's like, we work together on this. But no, nah, I remember him specifically. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's just a beautiful kind of uh, story, man. Aaron worked on um, a short that we did back in 03, 04 called Chameleon. Um, that we made after 3D, just to kind of remind ourselves that we could we could make shit. And uh, you know, uh, he was in high school at the time at the high school I went to in New Jersey, and now he's working. I think was he in the camera department? Yeah, um, he's in the camera. Yeah, yeah, so super dope. That, that was yeah, that was like crazy. I love that when that kind of thing happens, man. When when you get the full circle moments, you know, it just shows yeah. that you're in the right space. You know, that you're working with the right people, man. That your energy's right. When you end up someplace like that. Yeah. Do you have any plans on becoming a director or directing down the line? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I just don't want to rush it, but it's definitely something that I want to do. Um, I've always wanted to do it, though. Even even in the early stages of me acting, it was something I always wanted to do. Um, but it was just my focus has been on the acting. But, yeah, it's definitely something I want to get into. Um, and not just, like, in the way of, like, a lot of people – which is not a knock on this, but like, you know, hey, I've been on the show for six years. Let me start directing some episodes. No, right. like I actually would like to just do I have other stories that I want to tell. Right. And, um, and I, you know, I've dabbled in directing here and there, you know, some web stuff, but I want to get 
you know, in it and do something for real. Yeah. I always say, man, I mean, actors have probably the best training camp for it because you get to witness great direction, like on a one-to-one basis, you get to witness horrible direction. You get to see uh horror, you get to see, uh, uh, not ideal editing choices, you know, because uh, you're like, that That wasn't the take that I killed it on. You know what I mean? Like you, you're uh-huh. right in the middle of it. And if you can like kind of change, take, you know, change your hat and look at it from uh, outside of your own skill set, it's like a great craft to take into um, the director's chair, man. Yeah. I mean, one of the things too, I'm one of them rare actors that I'm able to kind of let it go once I do it. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I will watch something and be like, damn, I feel like I had a better take. But I'm like, man, for whatever reason, they felt like that worked. You know what I'm saying? Uh, whatever the, why I thought my take was better on this one, this, for some reason, they felt helped tell the story more. You know, every now and again, I will shoot an email and be like, yo, man, that rough cut. I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. There was one scene that they could have maybe done. And, you know, and our team is really good about listening to that kind of stuff. Right, so, I I never do it though. Like I might have done it like once all season, but I know people who do it <laughs> a lot. Right, um, but I, I don't get caught up in all of that. But I, it's because I'd rather just sit back and let the process take place. And I, I like the fact that it's a team sport, and I like to see what the other members of the team are going to do with what you give them. You know, right. it's like passing somebody a no look pass. Like, are you going to take a jumper? Are you going to go up for a dunk? Like, I'm right. excited to see what you're going to do with it. My job right. is just to pass you the ball. Now you got it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. for me to pass you the ball, then be like, yo, 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 take the jumper. Now come over here. It's just too much. I might as well just do it myself, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, there's, there's a time and a place for hero ball. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a time for it. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely a time for it. And that's when you find yourself on those teams that can't do it. Right. You know, but it's just like the beautiful thing about what we do is you can generally tell what you're going to get into based on the script. You know, from an actor's perspective, you, you're pretty safe, man. You read something and you read some material. And I mean, you could guess where this is going based right. on what you're reading, man. You, you can you know where you're going with it. What's the difference? And I don't want to indict anybody and I'm not going to. You don't, we don't have don't to call out no names. <laughs> Are you, I got a feeling you're going somewhere with it. I don't call no names. <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't, whatever your answer is, everybody just know it doesn't necessarily apply to for life. Uh, it's just, but like, what's the difference as an actor episode to episode when you're like, you know, one episode you could have director A and it's, it's not great. And then the next episode, you have director B, and the shit's awesome. Like, and there's a lot of factors there. But like, what are the primary differences that are that are occurring between those two um, hands on the steering wheel? Um, the biggest thing I, I've noticed, and the beautiful thing about the shows that I've been a regular on, they've been things with the material that I think directors come to because of the material. Mm. But when I've like done like little stints on things. Uh, like, you know, maybe a three episode arc here or episode. I've noticed that like, they're probably here kind of for the same reason why I'm here. Like, I'm like, yo, you know, you know, I might be doing an episode of this show but it's because I'm doing this movie and I'm not making no money on this movie. So this is paying for the movie. I'm gonna be right. real with you. Right. But because my face is going to be on screen, I put just as much energy into the work that maybe I wouldn't do if I didn't need to do it. 
Whereas I think a lot of times you have these directors who show up who are like, yo, it's just a job. You know what I'm saying? There's no passion. So that's the biggest thing that I notice is when somebody shows up with no passion, like they don't care. That is uh, the biggest. I'm so annoyed by people like that, man. That's what anything, I mean, if we're playing pickup ball and we can come back to the basketball reference, but if I'm playing pickup ball, I'm like, yo, man, like, why put your sneakers on if you if you just coming to be, on, like, go play with the kids, man. Get out of here. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, we, we, we balling over here. Yeah, nobody's getting no trophies and nothing like that, but if we're showing up, we're playing hard. And if you're going to play with us, play hard. If you're not going to play with us, go over there to the kids, man, and, and, and play horse or something, man. You're like, yo, get out of here. You right. know, so... Uh, that's the biggest issue that I have with television when it's director to director. I don't oftentimes, like I said, on the shows that I've been on as a regular, I don't usually have that problem. You know, that wasn't a Southland issue. That's not a telling your story issue. It was not, a, definitely not a for life issue. You know what I'm saying? These are not the right. things. Uh, but sometimes you get these directors who are just like, yo, it's a journey. It's part of the journey. Like, I don't care. Right. What's been your most... Maybe if there's a top two, um, if it's not only one, like what's been the moment that you look back at your career and you're like, man, that was that was my best moment of of telling a story, whether it was a scene or a moment, you know, man, I don't know. I don't look back like that. I couldn't tell you. I'm probably more forgiving of it when I look back on it, to be real with you. Because when I do something, like, I, I'm so nitpicky about it when I see it the first time. I can't really enjoy something. You know what I'm saying? When I see it. So I, I wouldn't know. Like, I'd have to go back and look at something. And yeah. So I can't necessarily say, I mean, like, I can think of the experiences, you know, right. like, the experience we had on Premium, to me, was like, it really set the pace, the tone for, like, what I wanted, what I expected on set, you know, like there was some great moments that Zoe and I had that really built a relationship that carried over to, to my show, which is why I asked her to come over and be on the show with me because we really, we really vibe, but like, and, and, and watching Hill have a lot of fun. Like there was moments there where I was like, yo, it really set the pace and the tone for what I expected moving forward. Right. So I probably look on that experience with the most nostalgia but I I don't I have not seen that movie in years, yo. I have not like actually tried to watch it, but I haven't tried to watch anything I've done in years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> once I watch it, I, I let it go. When I look back fondly at moments, I'm like, you know, it's it tends to be like a moment that was where all team members were like in concert. So sometimes it's like, um, and oftentimes that's like a, a long, kind of complicated moving take of something where it's like the actors are are killing it. The DP is killing it. The production design is killing it, you know, and then you get there and Eric Lewis does his piano and he's killing it. And then like, there's just this little sequence where you're like, yeah, that that's like a symphony of like all the things that, um, that I was looking to accomplish. But then on the flip, there's little moments like even in premium, one of my favorite moments is when, you look in the mirror, I hate yourself sometimes, and we end act one. Like that's yeah. that is some basic shit, but it's it's kind of like I don't know, that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the stuff that's written in the script that you're like, this is gonna be the moment. Right. And then right. that's why I love when that happens, when it's like, well, this scene is obviously like you gotta gear up. I got my big crying scene. And right. then there'll be like a scene where it's like you're in the mirror and then something just happens. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, but that was dope. 
And I had no idea that was going to happen. And the only way that could happen is if everybody's quiet, if everybody doing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> That's the only way it can happen. You know, but to your point, another thing that I was thinking is, I think that when I look back on my best storytelling, and it's probably because theater allows this, the nostalgia of theater makes me think that this is the best I've ever been. Because there's no proof. I can't go back and, and, and pick it apart later on. Like, I have no idea, you know, because that moment that you were describing about, like, you know, when Elu was on the piano and, the, and you, like, you get to see all the magic happen, that technically, for me, when you're doing a play, is, like, the first run-through with, oh, with, like, the tech run-through. Like, after you've gotten all the lighting and you got the costumes together and the sound, and you really get a feel for like what this production is. Yeah, that is like always my favorite, most magical moment. But to, to if if I'm perfectly honest with myself, I can guarantee you that's probably our worst performance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it probably is, which is why no one's ever there to see it. You know what I'm saying? Because and which is why you stay for two hours after rehearsal so the director can tell you all the shit you did wrong. But I still that's always like a moment when you're like. Yo, this is something. Yeah. Like, wow, the lights, the like I can actually forget about everything else and just be here. I'm not thinking about blocking anymore. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm in costume. I'm that's that's like a great feeling, you know what I'm saying? And then you don't really get that back. I mean, you 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 have moments of it as the show goes on, but that one initial feeling of like, yo, man, we really got a show. You know what I'm saying? Which is like why I think a lot of times directors at the end of those rehearsals will be like, yo, that was so long. We went 20 minutes over. Because I think people are luxuriating in the fact that they're actually like living in these parts for the first time. Right. Um, have you, do you need, or have you developed tricks to kind of keep it new when you're doing repetitive takes on a TV or film set? Or are you fine just kind of like you can lock in and hit the hit the button and just redo what you've been doing i can do both i mean i i learned how to hit the button and redo because i did a lot of commercials right and once you do commercials you realize you're just there to sell soap um don't worry about trying to develop no kind of character and like you know it's just you're there to sell soap be in the right place tell the joke exactly the way they want you to do it get the hell out of there i can do that not right. necessarily my favorite but there's a joy in that too you know in that because I, I get into the idea of a process so once I, just, I, once I can take away the artistic aspect of it, just realize there's a process here, I can get into that. Um, but when you're somewhere where they actually allow you to act, um, I just act, man. Because nine times out of 10, when you get somewhere where you're allowed to act, at least for me, I'm with other people who are capable of what they're doing, very capable. And um, so you just listen, man. You listen and respond, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're going to do, you're going to be saying the same thing maybe for a couple of takes, but something different tends to happen when you and that person are just listening to each other and responding, you know, they might, they might, I don't know. It's just like, you can read their mind. Like, yo, that she was trying to say something different to me this time. So I'm going to respond differently. You know what I'm saying? Even though we're saying the same words, we're having a different conversation, you know? And um, so I, I think that there's beauty in that. Man. You know? Yeah. I don't like to do a million takes, but if you are a director who has established that that's your process and there's a method to your madness, it's not just you're scared that you won't have nothing to turn in. If that is a method to your madness, I will rock with you on that, man. 
I like I like a system, you know. I just right. like to do it. It's a it's a weird thing. I have thoughts on that because and and part of it's governed by never having had enough money to make anything. So like I I feel like after three takes, you know, we're doing four if we absolutely have to, but somewhere in there we're gonna edit it. You, you know what I mean? Like and and I just feel like there's a and I, you know I feel like that actually that um that requirement from the indie world has been fruitful in television because you have to move fast. Um, yeah. But it's interesting, man. Yeah. It's like you gotta yeah. also be able to like going back to the basketball shit it's like you got to be able to run in a system but like if you got if you have to isolate you also got to be able to take them off the dribble you know and 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 you got to know when to like pull those levers and as an actor or a director or anybody if you can if you can identify the moments that are yours to take over and and do with how you want to handle them then you can really carve out an interesting career for yourself. Yeah, you know, I mean, you got to be flexible. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I don't necessarily you have to be, but it's good to be flexible, man, because sometimes when a director pushes you outside of your comfort zone, because sometimes actors just get mad about doing a bunch of takes because they're tired. They're not comfortable doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the end of the day. Like, they'll, they'll come up with all these kind of ways to intellectualize it, but it comes down to is just like, yo, man, I'm not used to doing this. You're asking me to do something I'm not used to doing. I don't want to do it. I like to be uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Because then I can kind of find something that I never found before. You right. know, I, I kind of dig that. When I, when, I, when I first came on to Southland, one of the big things about that show was, um, they, you know, they, they before they even hire you, they, 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 it's like they do a background check. They talk to a whole bunch of people to make sure you're not an asshole. And part of the reason being is because they tell you, like, listen, we don't have sides on set. We don't do that. We don't do it. You come to work with your lines memorized already, and then you shoot. Now, that sounds like to someone who's never been on a TV show, they're like, yeah, that sounds like ABC. You're supposed to do that. But if you've ever worked on a television show, <laughs> hey, man, that's a beautiful concept. That's John right? Wells, I think right? you can do that. <laughs> that's John I'm, Wells, right? Yeah, John Wells, yeah. I, I feel like that's the policy across yeah, all- Yeah, you know, Animal Kingdom, too. Shows. Yeah. Nameless, yeah. all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love yeah, that. Yeah, do. Yeah, and it's tough, man. Because like, when he first said it to me, I was like, yo, I don't know how we're going to do that. But what ended up happening, at least on Southland, is we would have a lot shorter shooting days because a lot of handheld stuff and because everybody was so ultra prepared that you would get through the day quickly, quickly so you can right. go home and learn your lines for the next day. You have plenty of time. Right. You know, because um, they told me, they were like, yo, this is the show where you take your kids to school. If you have kids, you can take them to school, come to work, rap and pick them up and they were not lying yo and it was because he was like this is a well-oiled machine this is how we do it and that was a system that i was not used to working in but once you get in that system you love it man i don't work like that on every show right you know i got a feeling and i will see in the coming months i have a feeling that that's going to be a new requirement in this COVID 19 shooting because they're like i've seen conversation of limiting takes to uh, that the director gets and i'm like well if you're gonna limit my takes i gotta be shooting people who know their lines because because i've done some shows where the first three takes are somebody learning the lines you know what i mean and if 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 that's gonna so i i would be i would be a fan of that because you know everybody has their own process but like 
I show up ready to rock. I don't show yeah. up wondering how I'm going to shoot it or saying like, I don't need to shoot three master shot setups before I figure out what the master's going to be. And um, I feel like that'll be a, that'll be maybe a good byproduct across the industry of at least preparedness. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Well, you know, it takes preparation on all parts. So I will say this. A lot of times you can't do that in television because you'll show up the morning of and you got a whole new scene. You know what I'm saying? And so they didn't do that to us on Southland. You know what I mean? It yeah. was like they said, listen, we've taken the time to to grind the script out to the place where it's ready. Like right. we've taken the time to do this. So you don't have to worry about changing words. You don't have to worry about anything. It's like a play, essentially. Like a play has been workshopped before you got here. Right. So they already workshopped it. Now you just have this finished work and you can just, re- and as an actor, it's beautiful to be able to relax into something like that and mm-hmm. say, yo, this is what's happening. Even if you have a question about like where things are going or whatever, you can just live completely in the moment because you're like, well, yo, they, they took some time to think about this. So if you have a question, someone can answer it quickly. Right. You know? right. And yeah. I like that. Because you've been on TV before where it's like, Man, and these are like not good shows. I'm talking about the shows I did so I could pay for me being in, you know, this independent film. You know, you do something and you're like, yo, I got a question. Uh, this this doesn't really work for me. Can I say this line or explain to me why the word is, why it's written like this? And they'll be like, yo, you change it. What would you like to change it to? And I'll change it to this. Then they got to call some writer to come running down. And then they say, well, what would you like to say? I'd like to say this. And then this writer would be like, okay, no, how about say, and you see them thinking about it. Right. Say this. Right. I'm motherfucker, but why that shit better than what I got to say? Since we just coming up with shit. Right. You know what I mean? Like, why Why your shit so fly mine ain't? Like, I don't understand it. Like, just because you sat here and said, say this? Like, nah. Nah. Right. So then okay. you start being like, man, don't nobody care about this shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> man, I, I got I got stories on that stuff too, man. You know, <laughs> it, it it's amazing how much, um, well, you know what it is? It, it, it comes down to control. You know, the the joke that I always say is that if, you know, if you gave somebody the script right now for Goodwill Hunting, they'd say, well, why has he got to be a janitor? And why why math? Why not science? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, and, and that's just the nature of everybody's got to feel like their hands have value. Otherwise, yeah. they're obsolete. And, Perfect um, and, example of that. I love this shit. It was like hilarious. Uh, it was a money job. I mean, yeah. shit, fuck it, I did it. It was a money job. I was uh, getting ready to do an indie. Because usually if you see me on something, you're like, damn, he did one episode of that. It's because I was trying to pay for an indie, yo. <laughs> trying to justify it to my agents. I'm like, yo, if they'll give me X amount of dollars to, to be a guest star on this show, will y'all lay off of me if I want to make $125 a day doing this movie? Are, are we all good? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and usually it works like that. So this is one of the times. I was getting ready to do an indie, and I got an offer to do uh, one of them procedural shows. Uh, and I played a rapper. And I remember they wrote me this rap, this battle rap that I was supposed to say. It was with 3-6 Mafia, you know. And I was to run up on the stage while 3-6 Mafia is performing. I'm supposed to run up on stage, grab the mic, and kick like 16 bars, right? And so I'm like, all right, cool. Now I'm in New York. I'm about to fly out to L.A. to do this. I'm looking at it. And I, I never even took the time to memorize the rap because I was like, this must just be a placeholder rap because whoever wrote this never heard rap before. Like there's no rhythm to it. It's just, right. just the, it was like, there's no format here. Didn't memorize it. Get to set and 
uh, we start rehearsing it, and the director was a director who directed episodes of The Wire and stuff. It was a Money Geek fan, too. And he was like, yo, um, yeah, just say the first couple of lines of the rap, and then, you know, boom, we'll be done with it. So the writer comes on my trailer and was like, yo, man, you know, you got to learn, you got to do the rap, and blah, blah, blah. And the writer looked like, you know, like how Wu-Tang Clan said, you know, who's your A&R? A mountain climber who plays electric guitar. This is the dude who wrote this rap. <laughs> right. So I was like, all right, man, all right, you know, I'm not going to be an asshole. It's not my show. So let me let me learn it. So I learn it. I get to set. We get ready to shoot it. Do the first take. As soon as I start doing the rap and blah, blah, blah. One of the dudes from 3-6 Mafia is like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Cut, 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 cut. He finna say all that? Man, hell no. As soon as he came up, he started talking. We'd jump his ass, right? Right, right. <laughs> Boom. Guess what? They took out the rap. I come on stage. I grab the mic. I say, yo, yo. And they just jumped me. Right. Because that's how it would really go. But right. this guy needed to have so much control. He could not wait. Because literally, I was like, yo, where'd you get this rap from? He was mm-hmm. like, man, I was watching YouTube battles and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, man. <laughs> you know what? This I got I only got a couple more questions. And this that's a great example that loops me back to um, a thought I had in the beginning. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about what's going on in the world right now um, with Theo Travers the other day, I was asking him, you know, what are the stories that are missing in the world where a movie like Do the Right Thing made in 1989 basically, you know, could be made today without a frame changed, right? What hasn't been told in those, um, what is that, 30 years, 31 years um, that Hollywood needs to be uh taking part in getting out there more widely like what you know just like like what you just mentioned like there's stories that aren't being told that are making folks think that they have the agency and the authority over a world that they have no uh, no real understanding of like if it's like if a soldier told you yo yo that's not what happens in war and they're like whatever just just you know just get in the tank and do it like that because because i wrote it like that like what what stories do you think Hollywood should be considering? Uh, you know, stories is so many of them. I just think it's more the storytellers mm. is is what I think is like they have to take the the grips off of. And we're seeing it, man. I think that being a part of uh, having come into the game when we came into the game and like still being young enough to bear the fruits and enjoy the fruits of what the game is now is like. A great film. I love being considered like, you know, somewhat of an OG in a period of time where now we're starting to see them, you know, more people, you know, tell stories. You know what I'm saying? Like we need more people who 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 are in charge of telling stories who have the agency. You know what I'm saying? I need somebody from Chicago writing the shop. You know right. what I'm saying? I need somebody from there doing that. You know what I mean? I, I need I need that to happen. I need somebody young and or a millennial writing or being on the writing squad for euphoria. Like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, that's not right. something a bunch of old white guys can sit back and write, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, you need somebody in the room who can give this very specific girl, her very specific, this very specific young lady, her very specific voice. You know what right. I'm saying? And so when I say that, I don't know what stories, that that's what excites me is that as long as the people who are telling the stories are, have a real grip on it. It's not like, yo, this is something cool. Right. And... I, I, I'm excited to see anything, man. Like, I didn't know I needed Euphoria until I saw Euphoria. If if you could tell any story, what would you tell? Mm, good question. 
you know, I'm such a big Richard Pryor guy, man. Something, and just not just Richard Pryor. I mean, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. Yeah. Richard Pryor would be awesome. But it, it just that the the uh, story that about the complexity of how, like, so many of these comedians are, tr- are like, just pained and tragic people. You know what I'm saying? And to be a comedian at that time when you're carrying the brunt of just, the, the, you know, having to be entertaining and be funny, but then also wanting to say something politically, but in your own way, you know right. what I'm saying? And so like having to carry that message and then all those demons that come along with it, you fighting all the demons that, 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 uh, you know, came on board before politics were even a part of your life. You were born into a whorehouse, you know, like th- these kind of things, uh, you know, I, I'd love to tell a story about some, something as complex and as, 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 in, you know, incredible and, and unexpected as Richard Pryor. It was just interesting because it loops back to kind of how you were introduced to story to begin with, finding that comedic insight, that nuanced take on the mundane or on the painful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, man. You could, And that's the one beautiful thing about Richard. And I I like to infuse into my work too. I still was from Redman too. It's funny. Redman has an influence on me like that too, is that they find comedy in some of the most like not funny situations like you know like, like when he had that whole sketch of where the bus was getting stuck up right right right. you know right, what i'm saying and right. it was funny it was like yo this the only thing that was crazy about that this is red man on his album where they're sticking up the bus and dude's like yo this is a motherfucking stick up and he's like give me a gum give me a da-da-da-da. and like there's one guy in the background who his only line is ah Ah, it's like, yo, that's really how you would respond if a motherfucker got on the on there. But it was like one of the most hilarious sketches, and that was the way in which his comedy and which his rhymes were. It was like you could talk about poverty or, or whatever, and it still be really funny and real. And what we oftentimes don't realize is like even in the most tragic moments, we can find comedy. Like right now, we're going through. You know, we're seeing we're seeing protest after protest daily, and somebody. It might have been you sent me this video of um, in Atlanta where they were protesting. And it was just a dude standing on the front line, just snapping on the cops. Like, oh, man, look at you. They gave you the little shield. Oh, they, you know, and it was just like he was just joining on them. Right. And it was just here it is in this. In the, and the cop wasn't mad. Like they, the cop was kind of laughing, too. And here it is. It was like in the middle of all this chaos, he finds comedy. Because it is funny. Like, why they get out do the little shield? Like, right. I, they feel like he need to be protected a little less. Like, you know, like it, it was just funny to me, you know. <laughs> like, and it was just like that's the thing that I love about art is like you're able to find take tragedy and maybe sprinkle in something, and it makes it just that much realer. It's not that you're making light of the situation; it just makes it that much real, realer. You know what I'm saying? And um, I love to be able to explore that dichotomy in storytelling, man. And you get the defenses down so people will hear it. Right, right. But it takes somebody who knows how to do that to do it. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, you know, if I'm a write about, if I'm writing about, you know, being a, a soldier, a German soldier or something like that, I don't know nothing about that. So I might not know the things that maybe make fine levity in that situation. I may just know it from a very uh, a voyeuristic perspective of like what I've studied. Like I could have read a lot, interviewed a lot of people, but I maybe don't know it inherently, you know? Right. And so... I would have to talk to someone or have somebody in the room who knows that kind of thing inherently, or is a little closer to the situation because it ain't gonna be to me, but somebody a little closer to the situation. And right. now that the rooms are opening up, these writers' rooms and these uh, there's so many different avenues for people to tell stories. We're getting people with these diverse voices and experiences. We're able to tell us things. I didn't know I needed pose until I saw pose. 
If you try to pitch pose to me and say, hey, man, sit down and watch this, I'd probably be like, yeah, I'm going to get to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to get to it. But then when I now I'm like, yo, I love that show. Ain't got nothing to do with my life. Ain't got nothing to do with my experience, or at least so I didn't think until I watched it and realized how much it really did. You know? And it's like, that's dope to me, man. Like, that, that to have that experience and have somebody who really knows that world tell that story. Right. And then bring me in, who I don't know nothing about that world. You know, I love that. You know what I'm saying? Justin Lin did that with um, Better Luck Tomorrow. Right, right. So it's just like, I love those experiences. I'm looking forward to those opportunities more. Any, uh, any parting words you would want to share with the audience about storytelling or the industry or what, why we'll always need stories or anything at all, man, before we part here? Yeah, man. The same thing I give, the same advice I give to any actor is the same advice I give to any creative. You live or die on your own choices, man. At the end of the day, you live or die on your own choices. So if you're gonna dance, might as well do the dance you do best, man. Like, it, like bring your story to the table, man. Whatever, we're each, every last one of us is unique uh, because we've had unique experiences. It may not be tragic, it may not be whatever, but it's just unique. And it's like, find your unique voice and don't hide it like bring it to the table like that because at the end of the day when the smoke clears the people who are celebrated are the people who stood out not the people who just got along you know and so it's like yeah you know i I could work my hardest to be in the middle or i could just do something on the outskirts and then you know let's see if you notice all right folks that's dorian missick in a nutshell I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in to episode three of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. I invite you to hit us up at the mailbag with any uh, questions or suggestions or tips or um, hey ideas for topics to cover. Um, you know, that we, we are listening and we will do our best to incorporate what you are looking to maybe learn more about into the interviews that we do with uh, the folks that are so kind enough to join us. Um, thank you to everybody for supporting, um, getting that director's chair wear uh, on the director.video website. That's drctr.video. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the team that helps make this podcast possible. That is the homie Tristan Nash and the homie Jada George, um, just on the production and the uh, organization and administration part of this deal. And again, thank Dorian for joining us. And I'll this week I'll do the lyrics to live by, but I'm going to pull from a poem that comes from Jonathan Gottschall the storytelling animal. And that quote is, we are as a species addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. So I think that just kind of speaks to the importance of what we do as storytellers and uh, the power of that entertainment. Stay tuned for episode four, which will be someone very familiar to Mr. Dorian Missing. So as always, stay safe and spread love.